Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Greetings, fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me for another stop on our journey through the history of the world. As always, before we get started, uh, I want to thank all the people who show their support for this podcast series by subscribing to my Patreon.com site. The love letters to the British Isles, to the world, you know, they're, they're free. Uh, that is possible because of the contribution that's made uh, via the Patreon.com site. So, if you're not a member and you'd like to join, go to Patreon.com, look for me by name and sign up. Part with some cash, uh, monthly or annually, it's cheaper by the dozen. Uh, you become a member, you join the family uh, we do a weekly, we do vodcasts we do a weekly question and answer session we do competitions, especially getting closer to Christmas there'll be competitions um, so come on and join, become part of the family of like-minded, curious, questioning types uh, interested in history but interested in the present as well uh, and it'd be great to see you there ok, it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine as we set off on the next stop on my love letter to the world recorder, microphone, action birth clouded in the mists of time, a young man known for his honesty, decency and trustworthiness, visions, recitation and submission, the creation of a force with great energy and huge possibilities, confident and insistent, sweeping across the world, heralding a seismic shift in the human story and marking a moment that made everything different forever. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. Last week in your journey was 410 AD and we followed a mighty barbarian army into Rome to sack the city. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Hi Paul. Well this week things couldn't be any more different really. We're leaving behind all of that death and destruction uh, and the collapse of the once all-powerful Roman Empire and travelling forward in time to around 570 AD to witness a birth and a flowering that has had and continues to have a profound effect on the fabric of the world. We're travelling to Mecca to meet Muhammad, the man who hears the voice of an angel. Paul, God, it's, I'll tell you where I am. I'm in Stirling, and it's as bleak as it could possibly be, and it's as cold as a well digger's arse. Anyway, uh, where are we for the love letter to the world? Well, I suppose you'd have to say we're in Mecca. I suppose you would have to say we're in a much warmer place in the love letter to the world, uh, because we're, we're looking at the birth of Islam this time, which is, without a doubt, that's a, that's a moment in the in the story of the world surely changed everything 
at the time and in the years since it has continued to change everything it's changing everything now even as we speak as part of the mix so really I suppose we're talking about Muhammad always with these these people like the Buddha uh, and Jesus and, and others there's no absolute certainty at all about exactly when he was born his, his birthday's a bit of a mystery it always is for these, these men why, why is that? I think because they're born into obscurity um, and by the time they become famous nobody's bothered to remember I don't know how much effort used to be made into keeping track of what age people were I'm, I'm sure there were other priorities in people's worlds and the, and the marking annually of, of a date when you were born, I, I don't know. I, I remain. I, I, I'm a bit sceptical about how often poor people would actually bother to mark their birthday, the anniversary thereof. I don't know really. Um, but as, uh, by the time they become worth remembering, it, it's too late to know when they were born. <laughs> nobody remembers because nobody knew they were going to be important. They were just yet another peasant born into nothing, uh, and, it, and it's only later that they become notable. But you, you might say there's a consensus for what it's worth that he was born somewhere around 570 AD, there or thereabouts. So he's, he's a 6th century man, uh, the latter part of the 6th century. He was born in what is now Mecca, and he was born into the Banu Hashim clan of the Quraysh tribe. That's his, that's his lineage. Uh, according to the story, like again, as with the Buddha, as with Jesus, there's been in the intervening centuries and, uh, and whatever a, a mythologising has happened around them the wheat of truth is hard to separate from the chaff of everything else that's, that's, that whirls around figures like Muhammad but it, it would appear that he was orphaned the, the, the traditional version has him orphaned about the age of six and that from that point on he was raised by an extended family you know he's living in a, in a clan situation you know so there's going to be you know uncles and aunts and the, the extended grandparents and whatever the myth also goes that he was ever such a nice lad he was ever so honest and decent so that he picked up along the way the name Alamin which means something like trustworthy but you would expect given what Muhammad becomes whether he was or not whether he was actually a you know a typical lad or something special um, it, it's hard it's hard to tell by now but there you go part of the mythology around him says and maybe he was conspicuously honest and decent in his dealings with people even from a young age um, what area where are we in the modern world you know Mecca's well, well, in Mecca the, the, we're in the Arab world the Arabian Peninsula the old world of of the Bible in his adulthood, he comes to the attention of an older woman called Khadija, who's a, a merchant, a quite a well-to-do woman, older than him. Uh, and she becomes his first wife and the mother of the eldest of his children. So his, his first marriage is with an older woman. Uh, and, and so far, so obscure, really. There's nothing much to write home about. But then the moment... Our, for our purposes, you know, the, the moment in question is in the is on a day in the year 610 AD when, he said, the angel Jabril, which is a, a different version of the angel Gabriel. We would say Gabriel, but in the Arab-speaking world, Jabril, but the same eminence, the same figure sent down from God, starts talking to him. 
and said, Recite in the name of the Lord who created, created man from a clot of blood. Now, that's the first line of what becomes uh, Quran, the recitation. He was already, by that time, before the angel spoke to him, he was a pious man. He was spiritual and he was given to taking himself off to a cave in the side of Mount Hira and spending time contemplating the eternal verities. So it's it's in the cave overlooking Mecca that he has this encounter. And there's something familiar about the nature of the encounter because it happens in the form of a bright light, a blinding light and a voice. And this there's a, there's a recurrent theme there. You know, St. Paul's moment on the road to Damascus was like that. He heard Jesus, God, uh, and it was a bright light and a, and a voice. <laughs> and this is, this is the experience that Muhammad has. And, it, you know, people looking on at that say it's like cosmic consciousness. Uh, it's a phenomenon. Uh, down through the ages, individuals from time to time have felt convinced that they have made contact with the divine. In fact, you know, you know, later on in the love letter to the world, uh, Dostoevsky, he, in his epilepsy, the onset of his grand mal seizures, features a bright light and a, a, trans, a transcendence. So there's, there's something that people have experienced, all, always have, especially people that become prophets, people that, that become leaders. It's, it's a recurrent feature that they have this experience. And so th- this, this happens to Muhammad, and he, he experiences it as the word of the angel Jibreel, who starts talking to him. You kind of get the impression that he was, he was quite a, 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 you know, a, a gentle individual at that time and he was quite overwhelmed no, no surprise I suppose but on, on, on experiencing this being spoken to by, by an angel he was quite overwhelmed and he spoke first of all to his wife Khadija and she was very supportive and let's imagine maybe that made all the difference perhaps he might have been overwhelmed by the immensity of what was happening to him but she was able to kind of uh, back him up and, and support him and so from that moment, for the, and for the next 22 years, right up until his death, in fact, Muhammad continued to hear the word of God and the peoples speaking the, Arab, the Arabic tongue uh, called God Allah. And so he heard, he heard from Allah for the next 22 years. Um, and he was careful to point out that he was only repeating what he was hearing. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't creating this testimony. He was hearing it. And, and that's why the collected word of Allah is called Quran, which means the recitation. He's just the, the, the conduit for this. He's, he's channeling this information that's coming straight from God. And what he understood right from the get-go was that, he, that man was to bow down and submit to Allah. And Islam, the word Islam means submission. So that's, the, that's at the heart of of the faith, it's to submit, bow down literally and metaphorically to, to Allah, to God. Khadija dies, which removes a rock from Muhammad's life, and then between 619 and 622 AD, that three-year period, Muhammad feels, and probably is, under increasing pressure in Mecca. 
because a growing number there are angered by his talk of one God. Up until that point, the pre-Islamic Arab people believed in, you know, they worshipped, well, what people like Muhammad would call idols. They didn't follow one God. They followed multiple figures in their in a in a pantheon so it's like happening all over it is it is if, since forever everybody was worshiping multiple gods in different forms all around the world but there were uh, trends towards monotheism the hebrews the jews already worshiped one god that they knew as yahweh or jehovah um and then you've got the christians who believe in one god and Islam, Zoroastrianism elsewhere in, in, in that part of the world that we would think of as Persia or, or Iran, Zoroastrianism, and that's a monotheism of its own sort. But it was, it was on the road out. So Muhammad is, is, is another of these individuals who senses that there's only one God. And he's hearing from him direct. Uh, and continuing to talk about this in Mecca, he was, he was annoying people who weren't persuaded of the, of the notion of one God. And so, in response, Muhammad and his followers, I'm not sure how many, but they move, they travel 300 and odd, 350 miles north of Mecca to Yathrib. And this is a huge and significant part of the story of Muhammad. This is the migration or the Hijrah. And in due time, Yathrib was renamed Medina. That's a more familiar name. Medina means the Prophet's city. This movement out of Mecca and to elsewhere is an important part of the coming together of, of Muhammad as the prophet. His status grows and within about eight years, within a decade, he, he's back in Mecca and he has, he has achieved the submission, submission being the appropriate word, of the people of Mecca. And one of the first thing he does is that he goes to the Kaaba, which is that, it's a, a the Hajj, where Muslims are supposed to go to the to Mecca once in their life, if they can, if, if their circumstances allow it. And, it, and they do that circling. They, they, it all focuses on going round and round the, that great black cube-like structure. Well, within that is the Kaaba, and it's an ancient and mysterious stone structure. Uh, I don't think anybody's sure now exactly what it ever was, where it came from. But at the time of Muhammad, it contained idols, images of, of things to be worshipped by those pre-Islamic Arabs. And Muhammad threw them out, cast them down, whatever you want to call it. Apparently, except apparently a depiction of the virgin and child. So Mary and the baby Jesus, apparently a, a depiction of, of those two that was left untouched. Do people know why? Well... The, 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 well, apart from anything else, you know, the, the, the Islamic faith honours Jesus as, as a prophet, recognises Jesus as somebody else who is in direct communication with God. That comes from Muhammad's recitation. So maybe he was already deeming it appropriate that a depiction of Jesus and, and the woman from whom he had come was not to be touched, you know, was worthy of being there. Anyway, Muhammad dies, uh, departs the, this earthly place in 632. But by that time, he had, he had built something. He had created something. The Umar is the brotherhood of the... And it's a sisterhood as well, I suppose. It's, it's everyone who's faithful. All of the faithful are equal. But nonetheless, it, it was still... By the time he died, it wasn't secure, really. 
Islam could have, in that way that early Christianity might not have survived, it might not have survived full stop. Similarly, uh, Islam, that faith, was, by the time he died, by the time the prophet died, it wasn't secure and it was riven with disputes that were as always, human nature being what it is, you know, there were different different factions within it, saying, you know, trying to get the upper hand and whatever. But having said that, it's obviously Islam survived, and upon his recitation, upon his teachings, were built two, not one, but two Arabic empires, dynasties, caliphates. Um, and what was very, what was revolutionary about what he said? There's always something. There's a, a unique. There's unique selling points uh, about. Christianity about Judaism. One of the unique selling points about Islam is that uh, Muhammad said that the, the brotherhood, the Ummah, it wasn't about bloodlines, it wasn't about kin, it wasn't about being physically related. The Ummah was held together by the faith. And anyone who accepted the faith was equal. You know, that was an important variation on a theme. All believers of Islam were, are equal. As far as Allah is concerned, so it's not about who you're. It's not about who you're related to. It's about the faith. The Quran, uh, the recitation, it did for the Arabic language what the King James version of the Bible, the authorized version of the Bible, did for English. Kind of fixed it. It kind of crystallized the language. When the King James Version of the Bible was put together, the, the version of English that's enshrined in there has survived ever since. The KJV is a foundational document of the English language and of English literature. Well, the Quran did that for Arabic. It, it fixed it. This, this is the language now, as, as we see it in the Quran. And also, for the longest time, the Arabic peoples didn't have any scripture. They didn't have, like, a holy book. The Jews had the Bible, the Christians had had their scripture, but now, and for the first time and forever, the Arabic world had scripture, had, had a holy book. Muhammad said that there had been, he acknowledged that there had been prophets before, including Jesus, but he said that he was the last, there would be no more, and therefore the Quran was the last we were ever going to hear from God. This is his final final chapter or the final version of events, and it was and it was therefore perfect. This was the final word. Any and all versions of anything that had come before were lesser. This was the one. Uh, the, Islam was also a simple faith. It was simple for anyone to understand, and it was also highly portable. You know, it, it, people didn't need access to necessarily to to fixed places like churches or cathedrals or or, or mosques, really. You could do it with your prayer mat and the recitation that if you'd learned as a child. So it had various elements about it that made it a very success. Apart from anything else, it was a very effective product. And in any of it, it was also a third monotheism. Here was, the, here was a third iteration of that idea. And the Umar, the, the, the Muslim world, regarded the monotheists as people of the book. So Jews and Christians and Muslims were all people of the book because Muslims also revere the Old Testament. That teaching, the Bible, matters as much. The Quran is just the, is just the last word. But they regarded themselves, or, or it's not really so much the way they regarded themselves, it was self-evident that the Jewish people were outcasts by their own understanding. You know, they had been cast out of, 
of the Holy Land, and they were, you know, and they had been wanderers and all the rest of it, and and their great kind of uh, foundation myth, their their origin story was that they were waiting for salvation. They were waiting for someone to come and fix it. And then Christianity was was different again. Christianity had taken centuries to establish itself. It was a very frail little seedling of a faith when it emerged, and it was there were various times when it was almost swept away. So it was different. Again, Islam came out of nowhere and within a matter of years, and certainly in you know, after after Muhammad's death, it had swept across the old world like a, a wave. You know, the cliche of a tsunami was Islam. It, it came out of nowhere. It rose up very quickly. It became confident and quick and insistent, and it just it, it swept over the world. So Muhammad was born in the in the sixth century. Died in the seventh century. You know, he dies six three two, and the seventh century world was already complicated. You kind of got to kind of got to backtrack. You know, this the, this love letter to the world has has been about you know the the comings and goings of empires. You know, Mesopotamia and and Egypt and and the, and the and the Persians and the Greek world and the Roman world. And, and people on the move, folk movements, you know, appearing in the old world and in the, in the you know, the, like the Holy Land or Mesopotamia, oh, they're always coming in out of the north or coming in out of the east, you know. It's, and by the seventh century, this it was an even more dynamic situation. Uh, the Romans had, for centuries, they had inherited the classical world, the, the, the world of the Greeks, and they had been the, the legatees of that of that world, and they had carried it forward. And remade it in their own image, but but by this time it was gone. It's certainly gone in the in the West. Here in in the British Isles, for example, old Britannia, the, that old um, province of Rome, the Romans were gone and had been replaced by Germanic people. Angles and Saxons had come in. In Gaul, which is France, there were Franks. Uh, Franks is where the name France comes from. That's another Germanic people who are who are influential and and on the make. You've got Visigoths and Vandals in Spain, another group of people, another tribe, another identity. There's Lombards in Italy. Uh, in the east, in the Eastern Roman Empire, because remember, you know, the Roman Empire was split east and west, and in the east, you've got a, an Eastern Roman Empire and it, based in Constantinople. I'm describing these people and these, and these individuals just to provide a, a context for, for, the, for the complicated wider world into which Islam was a, was a would emerge. So it's, it's a disjointed sort of world. Yes, there's a lot of people with their own ideas, a lot of people on the make, a lot of people on the move. So you know it, what I mean is, it's not as though Islam emerged into anything settled and sorted. It, it arrived into a, a maelstrom of people. From the end of the sixth century into the beginning of the seventh century, the bishop of Rome was Gregory the Great. Right, so he's the he's the big man in in charge in Rome. It was Gregory the Great who sent Augustine to Britain to reconvert the backsliding locals. Christianity had been there under Rome, but in the absence of Rome, the locals had all gone back into their pagan ways, and so Gregory sent Augustine to turn them back to Christianity. So, in the West, in the absence of Rome and the Romans, uh, the Christianity had kind of ebbed and flowed sometimes it had almost been swept away altogether so you know so, so Christianity was you know in in flux 
Uh, in the further east, you know, getting towards the territory of, uh, of of Muhammad, the eastern Roman emperors were at daggers drawn, were at the throats of the Sassanids. The Sassanids were effectively the inheritors of the empire of Alexander the Great. I mean, Alexander the Great was eight centuries before, but the Sassanids were in that were in that line of descent. And there, Christianity and Zoroastrianism were were face to face. And as I've already mentioned, Zoroastrianism was an ancient monotheism, but at that point, it was it was in decline. So, so you've got, in terms of a context, uh, you've got. Latter-day Romans in Constantinople, uh, you've got Latter-day Persians in the form of the Sassanids, but those two big elements are so distracted with one another that they take their eye off the ball and they don't see what's happening around them and coming their way, which is to say that out of Central Asia, there's now a new movement and it's the Avars, another nomadic people of the sort that would continually just appear from over the horizon and throw themselves into the mix. The Avars built an empire of their own. Um, by 1558, they were able to send an embassy to Justinian. You know, they sent emissaries to Justinian. They also the, the, the Avars also invented, as far as we can tell, the stirrup. Uh, horse riding up until that point, although there were saddles and such like, there, were, there was no stirrup. The Avars invented the stirrup which was the, the, a key way of controlling the horse. and So actually, for that alone, the Avars changed, changed the world. So all of that, all of, all of these, you know, Franks, uh, Angles and uh, Saxons, uh, Visigoths and Vandals, Lombards, uh, Sassanids, uh, Byzantine Romans, uh, you know, uh, the precursors of the Huns, Avars, they're all, they're all there, they're all in the mix, you know, and it's into that world of of uncertainty and who's going to dominate, who's going to get the upper hand. It's into that world that the Muslims arrive. Muhammad creates Islam. There's Muhammad in his cave, has this moment of blinding light and hears a voice. And for all that it's just happening to one man in a cave overlooking the as then unheard of city of Mecca, it changes the world like a seismic event. An island race who see themselves as special and uniquely blessed, warring families, new religions and bloody climactic battles, Shinto versus Buddhism, family versus kings and emperors, deadly assassination plots hatched beneath beautiful trees of wisteria, loyalty to family above all and everyone. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It'd be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it, get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments, and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Catnip Inc. Music is composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios. And the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. podcast production. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.